So here in Western culture, there are many things that um, have become so familiar and have veered so far off the path of their original purpose and meaning, but perhaps few have veered quite as widely as Christmas. So we might think of Sally in a Christmas, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, who uh, recruits her brother to help her write a letter to Santa. She gives him a number of suggestions and says, uh, please note the size and quantity of each item. And if it's getting too confusing, don't worry, just send money. Maybe tens and twenties. Well, I'm not sure that Americans on the whole really know what Christmas is about. Lights, presents, family, turkey, cocoa, fudge, Christmas carols, a little pick-me-up in the midst of bad weather. And for what? It's kind of the question Charlie Brown is out to answer, isn't it? Why the hassle? Why the presents? Why the junk food? Why start off the new year overweight? Why, why, why? Why all the fuss? Not to mention the financial strain. Well, Linus gets down to the heart of Christmas by opening the Bible for Charlie Brown and his friends and explaining what Christmas is all about. I'd suggest to you that that's not a bad place to begin. It's also not a bad place to stay. As Christians, this is critical for us because we can't afford to lose Christmas. I might even go so far as to say that if we lose Christmas because of what it is for our faith, that we would lose our way entirely. And the cookies and the cocoa and fudge and lights and presents and trees and celebrations are all good. And they're all signals. We understand them as gifts from a bountiful God that point to the bounty of heaven given at Christmas for us. We can joyfully be generous. We can joyfully feast because we have much to feast about. And we have been ourselves the recipient of God's abundant grace. And so at Christmas, we merely mirror the goodness of God. And yet if those signals become the thing, we lose sight of the thing that the signals point to. But if we see them in the light of signals pointing to a greater reality, then we have a framework for infusing our traditions and celebrations with fresh and biblical meaning, as long as the signals are in their proper place. They point to a reality that is beyond them, and that reality for us is found in the Word of God. And so if you would, please take up the Word of God with me and open to Psalm 119, somewhere around about uh, verse 129. We'll read from here in just a moment, but I'd like to draw your attention actually to the New Testament for a second, to the beginning of Hebrews where the writer says this at the beginning of his long letter. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And that's not a traditional text to start the Christmas sermon with. And yet, if we understand it properly, it is absolutely a Christmas text. So we know that God has spoken to us in the Bible through the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, and he did this for his people in many times and in many ways. With Moses, he gave physical tablets of stone on the top of a mountain. 
With David, he inspired the shepherd's heart, stargazing, to write the exact words that God wanted him to write. For some, he dictated the words that they were to say, word for word, and yet all of it, down to every letter, every stroke of a letter, is the inspired, precise word of God. And so we have in the Bible God's words for us communicated through God's men to God's people. And as we saw in the first Sunday of Advent, these words, as we looked at Jesus's view of the Bible from the Sermon on the Mount, are inspired. They are authoritative. They are inerrant. They are enduring, and they are fulfilled. But something happened. Something happened that would change the world forever. It's something that the prophets foretold. It's something that the apostles explained and declared. What happened was that God spoke through his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. The infinite and eternal God united with finite human nature. And so the word of God from the prophets is fulfilled in the word of God incarnate. That's what happened. The apostle John plainly calls Jesus the word of God. He begins his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so both the Bible and Jesus are called the Word of God. Well, Pastor John's been continuing to preach to us from Psalm 119, and we're going to see a few places here just how in the past several weeks in Psalm 119, we've had pointers to Jesus. And so look with me, if you will, to verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Well, what is the only way that a dead, cold sinner comes to find God's testimonies to be wonderful? Is it not through faith in Jesus Christ alone, coming to esteem the word of God that they were once indifferent toward? And how do they come to keep those testimonies, if not by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, as the gospel is applied and clung to in the life of a believer? Or verse 132, Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Well, has God not turned to us graciously through Jesus Christ alone? And is it not through Jesus Christ alone that we come to love the word of God? It is. Well, verse 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Well, our steps are kept steady only as we abide in Jesus. Only as we abide in Jesus. And apart from Jesus, We want iniquity to have dominion over us. In fact, we gave ourselves to it, lived for it, and pursued it above all else. But when Jesus came and the Holy Spirit made new the people of God, then they came to desire that their lives would be holy because their Savior is holy and they love him. In verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Did we not see from 2 Corinthians that God has shown upon us in the face of Jesus Christ? He has indeed. And Jesus tells us that he is the central focus of all of Scripture, and that certainly includes Psalm 119. In fact, Psalm 119 is extolling the written word of God 
And we will only honor that written word through repentant faith in God's incarnate word. Known in that light, we could certainly say that Psalm 119 is a Christmas psalm. Because Psalm 119 needs Christmas to happen in order to find its fulfillment in the Son of God. It points us to the gospel. And it's during the Advent season, during Christmas time, that the gospel of Jesus Christ shines brightly. And yet, no matter for how many hundreds of years, 2,000 years it has been observed, no matter how many times it has been declared, no matter how long the church has continued to faithfully preserve the word by God's providence and died for it, yet skeptics never continue, never fail to abound, certainly at Christmas time. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells us that the gospel is a stumbling block. The gospel is a stumbling block. To Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to Greeks, it's folly. And now, after we have gone through the Age of Enlightenment, and certainly as scientism has become the national religion, not science, scientism has become the national religion in the 20th century, central doctrines of the gospel are mocked and derided mercilessly. So what are these truths of the gospel that become a stumbling block to so many, keeping them from Christ? Well, let's take the atonement. At the heart of the gospel is the atonement, the truth that God's son suffered torture on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. The sinless and innocent Christ exchanged his righteousness for the guilt of his people to save them from their sins. And this makes no sense to a world that, number one, does not know that it is in sin or refuses to believe it, and two, who see a son of God uh, to them, a mere man, Jesus, hanging on a cross. How could one man hanging on a wooden Roman cross satisfy the wrath of God against a world full of sin? And how could a good God sacrifice his innocent son, his beloved, to torture and death for the sake of his enemies? It sounds immoral. And to the world, it certainly is. The atonement is a stumbling block. Oh, take the resurrection. You've probably been in enough cemeteries to know that dead people don't walk. And yet that's exactly what the Son of God did. In a world of skeptics, this is interesting, even skeptics can't deny with any reliability any historical accuracy at all, that, that, that the tomb was in fact empty. There's too much evidence for the empty tomb. But what they will go to their death denying was that it was empty because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, walked out, having been dead and then come to life. The resurrection is a stumbling block. The virgin birth. This is usually one of the first gospel doctrines to be denied. See, people may accept that Jesus was a good man and did some great things, but if you deny that he is God in the flesh, then his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary and his birth before she had ever intimately known a man, it, it's inconceivable. The virgin birth is a stumbling block. And of course, Jesus' miracles. When liberalism took hold of the church in a big way in the 19th century, they took the miracles of Jesus down to the church basement, threw them in the back of the closet, shut the door, and disavowed them. All of a sudden, to try to polish up Christianity for people who were now too informed to believe that, 
they just took away everything that made it spectacular and everything the Bible says about Jesus, who he is and what he did. And they said, here, here's your Christianity. Go live a better life. The miracles of Jesus are a stumbling block because mere men don't walk on lakes or feed thousands with a few fish and bread. That would be the best welfare program ever, and no one can pull that off. But nothing, none of these stumbling blocks compare to the greatest miracle of all. In fact, all of these miracles and belief in the gospel hinge on this one truth, the incarnation. The incarnation. God became man. And without that, without the incarnation, without the second person of the Trinity taking to himself a human nature, we have no gospel. We have no reason to meet. We have no reason to give. We have no reason to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow our Lord. Without God in flesh, there is no salvation, no virgin birth, no atonement, no miracles, no resurrection, no eternal life. We need God united with man in Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to John chapter 1. We've read from here already in our liturgy, call to worship. I'd like to draw your attention to verses 14 and 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Apostle John has already clearly established that the word is God. That he's talking about Jesus Christ when he uses the word logos, translated word here. And this is the incarnation. This is Christmas. The eternal son of God, the second person of the Godhead, the one through whom the Father created all things, now becoming a helpless human baby. The one who holds the cosmos together, being held, his life nourished at his mother's breast. The triune God, friends, is on full display here. Because if we do not embrace who God is for us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have left every page of Scripture behind. Because from Genesis to Revelation, every tenet of our faith, everything precious to us about the gospel and who God is hinges on this. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Without him, the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't get Christmas, friends. We can blow out the candles, put away the presents, eat pudding if you want, because someone's got to cope with the fact that we have nothing left. But we do have something. We have everything. We have one God, three persons, giving us a gospel and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we see here through the pen of the Apostle John that the only son came from the Father. We see that Jesus is unique. There's nobody like him, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And down in verse 18, most biblical manuscripts say, The only begotten Son who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we see that Jesus is distinct from the Father. 
Jesus is distinct from the Father, even as he is one God with the Father. And if he were not distinct from the Father, then it would make no sense at all that the Father would send him. Because how would that work? The second person of the Trinity is God's unique, eternal Son. And he makes the Father known to us in his incarnation. And this really is the great stumbling block of the gospel. And at this point, the world's religions depart from the Bible. Every critic draws the line at God becoming man to live a perfect life, dying atoning death and rise from the dead and coming back to reign. Mormonism denies Jesus' eternal equality and unity with the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses deny his deity. Liberalism acknowledges that he's a good man and nothing more. But if the incarnation is true, if the incarnation is true that the infinite God became finite man, then every biblical doctrine not only becomes possible, it becomes inevitable. Miracles are effortless for God. The virgin birth makes sense, and death on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God is no problem at all when it's God who's paying the penalty. Resurrection for the one who spoke all things into existence, how could it be otherwise? And so, friends, Merry Christmas, because the incarnation is true. So last week, Pastor John preached on the importance of knowing God. He made a very clear distinction, as must we, between knowing about God and knowing God. And this is what the incarnation is for. The Son of God became one of us that we might know God personally, intimately, relationally. It's extremely interesting and compelling and gripping and life-changing to meditate on the words that our Lord prayed just moments before he would go to Gethsemane, be hauled away by hundreds of soldiers, whipped to a pulp and crucified. In those last moments, this is what he said to his father, from whom he had never been separated. He says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And though, as God, he would never be separated from God, he would face what he never faced before, the wrath of God against sin. And what does he say? It was for eternal life. And what is eternal life? He says, it's knowing God, that they know you, the only true God. And knowing God only comes through the Son who came to us that first Christmas in order to accomplish the work of redemption that the Father sent him to do. We can never separate Christmas from the cross. They need each other. And there are two central truths to the incarnation that we have to maintain that we have to treasure, that we have to hold together if we are to know God. The first of those is this, that the word of God was God. The word of God, who is God's son, is God. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. That's the distinction between the Father and the Son. And yet in their distinction as divine persons, there is unity in Godhood. And that's why we confess with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And yet many people misunderstand this, some on purpose, some well-intentioned, perhaps most well-intentioned, misunderstand what it means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Does it mean that there are two gods? Does it mean that Christians are polytheists? Does the phrase Son of God mean that Jesus was born of the Father, his first created being, greater than anybody else? Many people teach that, and it's entirely wrong. These kinds of ideas have pervaded church history and are still taught by many today. So what does the Bible mean when it says that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, the phrase Son of God, that title is a title of divinity. When we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, we confess that Jesus is God. As we sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. You have to know this if you're going to know God. The Apostle John calls Jesus the Son of God in the prologue to his gospel, and then he uses that title throughout the whole thing, going on a very particular trajectory, and thank God that John tells us where he's going. He says at the end of the gospel, John 20, 31, these things are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to understand that Jesus, the Son of God, is fully God. The Word of God is God. He calls him the Word of God. This is another safeguard for the apostle to make sure that nobody misunderstands what he's saying about Jesus. The Jews who would have read his gospel understood that it was by the word of God that God made everything. The word of God must be eternal because the word of God is the agent through which everything came. Consider Psalm 33 and verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And then this word is personified as wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 8, as God creates the world, we see, does not wisdom call? Well, and what does wisdom call out? Well, when God established the heavens, says wisdom, I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. And so the Son of God, whom the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is the wisdom of God and the power of God, this is the eternal second person of the Trinity through whom all things were made. John's audience would have connected the dots as they began to read. In the beginning was the Word. And here we see that the Word is eternal the word always existed. He was. The Son of God never had a beginning, never had an end. And so he could say to the Jews, and this really riled them up, before Abraham was, I am. The word of God is eternal. And the word was with God. And here we have the personality of the word. In Greco-Roman culture, the idea of the logos, the word, they 
They saw the word as an impersonal force that bound the universe in order. It was a creative energy, but but John says, no, that's not it. That's not the word at all. The word is very personal. The word is a person. The word was with God. It wasn't just that the word was an impersonal force that created the cosmos. No, he is an eternal, personal relationship with the Father and the Spirit, which is what we see in the Genesis account of creation. The account, by the way, that the Apostle John is very intentionally alluding to in the way that he structures his prologue. And so he wants them to think back to creation. He wants them to see that God created everything, that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and that God said, let us make man in our image. The Son of God was with the Father eternally. And he goes on and he says, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. And this is the divinity of the Word. The Word is eternal. The word is personal, and the word is divine. And this is, this is what John is saying about his best friend. This is what John is saying about the man against whose breast he laid his head at the Last Supper. This was the Jesus whom he prayed with, laughed with, ate with, suffered with. This was that Jesus who he says is God. And this is what we confess in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, So when we read that Jesus is the Son of God and the Word of God, we recognize that the Word is God. This is the mystery of Christmas, that God would come to dwell with us in Jesus. This is the first great truth of the incarnation. This is what is inconceivable. And get this, here's the second truth. The Word of God was man. The Word of God was man. The Nicene Creed continues, speaking of Jesus, who, for us men and our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scripture. This is the heart of Christmas. God became man. The heresies that have plagued the church throughout her history, especially in the early centuries, centered on misunderstanding this, the incarnation. Which is why these early creeds and confessions work so hard to be so clear about who Jesus is and who he is not. Let me tell you what the incarnation is not. The incarnation is not the Son of God losing any aspect of his divinity in any way, shape, or form. Think about it. If God could change in any way, Father, Son, or Spirit, if God, any person of the Godhead, or God, the one God, could change in any way, he would no longer be God because one of his perfections, one of his attributes, is his eternal and unchangeable nature. He is eternally unchangeable. And if God is perfect and could change in any way, what direction is there to change? 
but imperfection. You can't improve on perfect. So whatever the incarnation is, it is not that the Son of God was altered in any way. So when we see him in the manger, friends, think about this, we see him in the manger possessing the fullness of the divine attributes that he's eternally had. The divine perfection in total are there in a crib. One early theologian put it like this, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent, eternal, unchangeable God, he became what he was not. It wasn't that God changed. It's that the word became what he had never before been, a fully human being. And this happened as the two natures, God and man, were united in the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is perhaps one of the most misunderstood passages on the incarnation that we have. Many people think that when it says that he emptied himself, that he took some of his divine attributes and shelved them for a time. I'll get them later when I return. No, nothing of the sort. Jesus does not lose any of his godness. That's not what Paul is saying. His divine perfections remain unchanged. So Jesus Christ, the God-man, is not God minus some amazing attributes. Rather, he is God plus the addition of manhood. The one Jesus, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent with the human nature. Think about the implications of this. Jesus lying in a manger is also the omnipresent God who holds the whole universe together, even as he's a little baby who is locally in his mother's arms. When we see Jesus learning to walk, he is the all-knowing God who is as a boy, learning what every boy needs to learn. This is startling. This is amazing. This is incomprehensible. It is beyond us. And yet, because we have a Bible that we can trust, we can declare it. We can cling to it. And we can put our hope in this Jesus. And we're so grateful that the theologians of the church hammered these things out in faithfulness to the scripture and left us the treasure of the early creeds. It's not that the creeds are the word of God, but they give testimony to the word of God. They wrestle through the, the, the direct teachings of the word of God and they clarify for us what is the teaching of the Bible. And one particular creed that is especially helpful at Christmas time as we're contemplating the incarnation is called the Chalcedonian definition or the Chalcedonian creed. They call it that because it was written at Chalcedon. So they're good with their naming in the year 451. And it summarizes these things with five truths about the incarnation. Five truths about the incarnation. First, Jesus has two natures. Jesus has two natures. The divine nature, God, and the human nature, man. Jesus has two natures. 
And second, each of Jesus' natures is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man, as we so often confess. It's not that he was part God and part man. No, Jesus is fully God. Everything true of the Father and the Holy Spirit is true of Jesus. Everything true of us, except that we are sinners, is true of Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. He is one of us, and he is God. And this is where a lot of people have gotten into trouble with this third truth. Each of Jesus' natures remains distinct. Each of Jesus' natures remains distinct. And so whatever's happening in the incarnation, he is not mixing his godhood with his manhood. The two have not mixed to to become some kind of a cocktail of the Son of God. No, each of them remains distinct. His divinity was unchanged. His humanity was completely human, though without sin. He did not have some kind of a hybrid nature that would make him something other than one of us. And it would make him something other than God because his godhood would have been transformed. Rather, the two natures of Jesus, full and complete, remain distinct in the fourth thing, in only one person. Christ is one person only. So we do not have a divine son of God and now a human son of God and therefore somehow four persons of the Trinity. No, we have one Jesus, two natures distinct and yet united in Jesus Christ, the word of God. I could ask you if it makes sense, but we'd be here all day. But are you understanding what I'm saying? Okay. Jesus has two natures, full and complete, distinct in one person, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is fifth. What is, one, what is true of one of Jesus' natures is nevertheless true of the whole person of Christ. What is true of one of Jesus' natures is true of the person of Christ. Let's take a, a look at what this means. Think about the fact that Jesus, as I referenced earlier, really riled up the Jews by saying, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly, because this is what the incarnation is, Jesus' human nature did not exist back in Abraham's day, certainly not before. Jesus' human nature was something that he added. It happened at a particular point in history, roundabout where the BCs turn into ADs, okay? Yet, his divine nature is eternal. His divine nature is before Abraham. His eternal nature, his divine nature. And yet, even though it's Jesus' divine nature, not his human nature that was before Abraham, yet the whole Christ can say before Abraham was born, I am. Or take, for example, that Jesus was tempted. We're told in Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this makes a big difference for us, that the Son of God was tempted. Because of this, in Hebrews 4.15, we're told, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We know from the Apostle James that God cannot be tempted. And so obviously Jesus' human nature is in view in his temptations, and yet the Son of God, the whole Christ, is tempted. 
what is true of one of his natures is true of the whole Christ. And so Jesus Christ, with a divine nature that cannot be tempted and a human nature that can, was tempted. And because of that, he is able to sympathize with you in your weakness. Today, when you're struggling, you can go to him and know that he hears you and he cares. For one more example, God cannot die. And yet the whole Christ died. His human nature died. And Jesus died. The Son of God died. And yet, this, this, friends, this is the wonder of this season. This is the amazing things that we believe as Christians. This is the significance of Christmas, that the word of God is eternally God and became man in order to save us from our sins. Do you want to know this word? Do you want to know God? If you do, then you must meditate on the incarnation as we've been doing this morning. Whether you've come to the God-man every day for the last 50 years or whether you've never come to him, come now. Come now to the God-man who came to save you. Forsake your sin. Trust in him alone and he will receive you. Friends, Jesus was born at Bethlehem so that he could go to Calvary and die. He was protected in swaddling cloths as a baby so that his dead body as a man could be preserved in grave clothes. Jesus escaped death as a toddler so that as a man, he could die the death that we deserve. And this is the Christ that we must treasure. The one who came down from heaven so that he could come up with the grave. The one who came before so that he can come again in victory, bringing us to himself to reign with him forever. This is what happened. This is what we trust. This is what we follow if we would keep Christmas and know God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This is the grace that Psalm 119 points us to. The word of God leads us to the word of God, who is God and man for us. So Merry Christmas. To him be all glory given. Please pray with me. Father, who can comprehend such things as these things that we have seen in your word today? Lord, we confess plainly without reservation that they are so far beyond us. We are in the deep end of theology, and yet we have a sure word that you have given us, not made up by us, not the wishful thinking of some ancient prophets, but the very words that you inspired them to record so that we would know in truth that Jesus, whom we do not now see, we yet love him, we know him, we know who he is and what he did and what he yet will do. We know his unchangeable nature, the humanity that he took on once for all, that our Savior, Son of God and Son of Man, is seated at your right hand, interceding for us that we may not fall away when in our own strength we could never remain. He is our faithful high priest. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you that you came. We praise you that you died. We praise that you suffered, that you know our struggles, and we praise you that we are not left in them, that one day you will make all things new, and that yet 
you will wipe away every tear. May we, with joyful longing, look forward to this hope, your return in glory, and celebrate Christmas knowing that this is what it was for, that we might know you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have declared these things to us in truth, that you have awakened our hearts to apprehend them, that you have preserved us and will preserve us because you are faithful and you cannot deny yourself. All glory be to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.